So Eugene asked me to speak on the topic of socially engaged Buddhism. And this is a topic that's been a passion for me for many years. I'm um, teaching a lot now sort of traditional Vipassana retreats, but I've also for years been teaching engaged Buddhism, which is the interface of Buddhist practice and social change. And this is very, it's a real personal study for me and study and practice because I had been an activist pretty much most of my life and then I encountered the Dharma and um, I, I got very, very seriously involved with meditation practice and when I became, I started to become a Buddhist as I called myself almost immediately and then I, re- I thought, okay, now that I'm a Buddhist, I can't be an activist. I'm going to have to put that part of me aside because Buddhists are very, they're into meditation and they're very, um, very, they're not very angry. They don't get too upset about things. You know, I had all this this whole web of stories that I had woven about what a Buddhist was. So I put my my, my activism to the side and after a certain point I started to feel very, very fragmented. Like I had cut off a piece of me. And so I began a process of exploring what would it mean to bring these things together. And luckily there was a lot of work done in this field and it's been an incredible exploration of this intersection. And I'll tell you that the, it's, such a, it's a beautiful, beautiful expression of the Dharma. To take what we do on the cushion, off the cushion, out into the world, and have the principles and the practices operating as we engage with the suffering that we meet on the planet. And I also think it's a very live practice for our times. So we're here, we're, we're here in, in this time when there's so much suffering, there's so much injustice and fear and poverty and war, and so it's really important to ask as a meditation practitioner, what does what we do here have to do with what's going on in the world? One of my early experiences was meeting the Dalai Lama. I think this was about right when I first started practicing. And um, at that time, there were about 40 of us going in to meet with him. And you had to write all your questions down in advance. And then um, the, the, his interpreters would sort of filter them and make sure you didn't say anything that was too weird. I, I mean, I don't know what they did, but they, they went through it. And so I had sent a question, and the question was, how do you explain the relationship between Dharma practice and political action or social action? And it got, so the translators took it and they worked with it. And when it finally got to the Dalai Lama, the question was, can politicians meditate? <laughs> and, um, and so I remember he heard the question and with his characteristic kind of ability to cut through he looked straight at me and he said Dharma is service and it was such a beautiful teaching for me it was, it was just the moment that I knew that the two did not have to be separate that dharma could be service and service could be dharma if we saw it through the appropriate lens. So 
socially engaged Buddhism, as I said, is this intersection of social change, social change work, social change perspectives, and Dharma practice. It's a term that came about in the 1930s in Vietnam with the um, Vietnamese monastic resistance to French colonialism. And then in the 60s, Thich Nhat Hanh really popularized it. Most of you are familiar with Thich Nhat Hanh. He, um, he was involved with what was called the, the School for Youth for Social Service. And it was this wonderful, wonderful training for young, mostly for young people, sort of college-age students, that during the Vietnam War and um, would come together and they would practice together. And they would have these days of, of sitting and meditation practice. And then they would go out and they would go work in the villages and work with the villages that had been bombed and bring education and rebuild homes. And so it was this very integrated practice. Now, initially, I don't think he was so clear, well, as a monk, should I be out there doing service or social change work? Uh, but there was a turning point for him where he realized that he just couldn't, he couldn't not do it, essentially. So he says, When I was in Vietnam, so many of our villages were being bombed. Along with my monastic brothers and sisters, I had to decide what, we, what to do. Should we continue to practice in our monasteries, or should we leave the meditation halls in order to help the people who were suffering under the bombs? After careful reflection, we decided to do both, to go out and help people and do so in mindfulness. We called it engaged Buddhism. Mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. Otherwise, what is the use of seeing? Once there is seeing, there must be acting. Otherwise, what is the use of seeing? Very, very um, deep understanding of how to take his practice out into the world. And such a beautiful model for us, for those of us who are interested in this field. And I want to be clear that it's not for everybody that some people feel like they come to this meditation practice and it's really about working on one, one's own inner life. And so it's fine if that's not your thing. For some people, I mean, I know for me, it, it's always been a very live and real and important part of my practice. There's also a whole range of ways we might identify as doing social change work. And I'm really careful with how I like to talk about it because I don't want anyone to feel excluded. So, for instance, I used to live in Berkeley, and Berkeley, it was the best thing that you could do was be an activist. An activist meant hardcore activist. You were out there on the front lines. You were, do, you were very politically involved. But people who were doing service, well, you were, you, know, you were helping people who were sick, or you were working in a hospice. Well, that was, that was okay, but that wasn't nearly as good as the activist. So let's forget about that. <laughs> let's pretend that distinction doesn't exist because I think it's not helpful at all. That there's actually a huge range of way that we can be of service to the world, to the planet. And it may be as simple as being present with someone that you really love and care about and helping them with their suffering. It may be that you work as in a service profession 
It may be that you're a therapist and you relieve suffering in some way. It may be that you um, are a teacher. So there's this whole range. And then there's the sort of hardcore end and everybody in between. But for those of you whose life has some commitment to service, we can apply the principles of engaged Buddhism in a way that may um, help our service come to life a bit more in light of our Dharma practice. So that the two aren't separate, but they actually can be seen as um, part of a whole. Historically, the Buddha was not talk, didn't talk much about social uh, social transformation. So it's actually a pretty weak area of the early Buddhist texts. You read it, and he'll say he'll give some advice to kings, or he'll say that people should be charitable and service is a good thing. But he didn't the the, the depth and the rigor to which he brought his teachings of internal personal liberation is not not the same as what as what he said about social transformation. Yet there have been throughout history all these wonderful, engaged practitioners of Buddhism. So, for instance, King Ashoka, many of you are familiar with him. He was about 200 years after the Buddha. He took the words of the Buddha really seriously and he created a Dharma kingdom. And he started, he built, and for those of you who know his story, he wasn't into Buddhism at all. He was actually quite, um, quite violent and was starting all these wars and conquered all of India, or what was India at the time. And then um, he had this transformation on this battlefield where the whole battlefield were, were strewn with dead bodies. And he saw the carnage and then this monk walked across the battlefield and he realized that he had been completely wrong and that it was in the spiritual life that true happiness would be found. So he transformed his country and he brought in, he started, he, actually he's known for starting the first veterinarian hospitals. He, um, he had hospitals and schools and all sorts of programs to help the poor. He was really interested in travelers and supporting travelers in the, um, as, as they journeyed. He was, he just, he was this very, very um, open-hearted ruler that transformed his society. So looking at engaged Buddhism, Engaged Buddhism these days, it's not really a movement. I wish it was. I wish we could say it was this great movement, but it's actually more this sort of loose framework of all these different people who are acting in the spirit of engaged Buddhism. So we have it all across Asia. We have people like the work of Thich Nhat Hanh. Some people say the Dalai Lama fits under this model of engaged Buddhism. There's Sarvodia, this man in, um, in Sri Lanka who started the first Buddhist-based development project that, ha- that is now in 10,000 villages across Sri Lanka. There's uh, the Cambodian, um, the famous Cambodian monk, Mahagosananda, who walks, he does peace walks across, across his country to get the mines removed that have been there since the war in Cambodia. I mean, there's just beautiful expressions all around Asia of engaged Buddhism. And then in America, we have so many engaged Buddhists. And it's, it's, um, 
There are individuals who are Buddhists who are doing incredible work in their lives, just individually. But there's also engaged Buddhist organizations. There's the Zen Hospice Project. There's um, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, which is what I mentioned earlier and something I've been involved with for years that brings meditation into um, prisons and has volunteer service. I mean, there's, there's just a huge range of programs that exist out there. We're really defining it as we go along. So if any way that you're part of it, you're part of pioneering this movement, which is not a movement, whatever it is, this movement, this rubric, it's a radical understanding and application of Buddhism for our times. So it's the notion of ending all suffering, not just internal suffering, but suffering that we meet in every facet. So it's different. It's different. And some people, as I said, some people, they don't respond to it. Another way of looking at it is because in the early Buddhist teachings, the Buddha didn't say, uh, well, it was a different, it was different time and different conditions. So there weren't things like nuclear weapons or ecological crisis to the level that we're in right now or um, political crisis. So we have to ask not what did the Buddha say about something, but what would the Buddha have said? You know, so what would the Buddha have said about militarism? What would the Buddha have said about nuclear weapons? We have to ask that question and kind of make assumptions based on, um, based on his teachings. So we know, for instance, that he, his first precept was non-harming. So then what would the Buddha say about what's going on with the environment or the current war in Iraq. So we can use his teachings and understand, um, sort of make these, make these, uh, draw these conclusions. We can also take the principles of Dharma and apply them as activists or service providers. And I'm going to go into that in a minute. And so all of the work that you're doing sitting on the cushion, what you've learned, all the insights, all the information can then be taken out and applied as you work in the world. And what I found is that engaged Buddhism itself can be a doorway to freedom. That the path itself is liberative. That we practice and we wake up more through our generosity, through our service, through our understanding, through our connecting. And it's just as freeing as the process of sitting on the cushion. And that the external and the internal are not so separate. So that what you do internally is going to affect everyone and everything you meet. So I think Buddhism gets this bad rap of being navel-gazing. You know, we just sit there and we're really self-absorbed. All we do is meditate. But actually, it has such profound implications in the transformation of the development of our wisdom and compassion and ability to understand ourselves and understand our motives and who we are and what we care about. I love the archetype of the Bodhisattva. So the Bodhisattva is this being who's committed to waking up for the sake of all beings. Now, this bodhisattva is 
generally it's not it's not a political archetype but I see it this way I call it the ordinary bodhisattva so it's this bodhisattva so we can do our social change work we can practice in the world in a way that's committed to liberation so that if you're going to work as a teacher you're not just doing it um, just to teach you could be just doing it but one way of thinking about it is that it's in this whole sphere of the bodhisattva this being who's waking up who's waking up for the sake of the whole world and then that becomes um, it's like we have this connection to something greater than ourselves so for me I try I take bodhisattva vows and I every morning I'll say something like for as long as space exists and sentient beings endure may I may I be the living ground of love for all beings or may I stay to dispel the misery of the world these are vows that can really inform how we work in the world so we feel connected to our Dharma practice as we go out So some of the principles that we take from practice that can be applied, what we might call engaged Buddhist principles, are principles like mindfulness and action. So it's not just mindfulness as we meditate, but mindfulness when we go out into the world. An example of that might be... um, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship has done protests, um, has, has done mindful, brought mindfulness to protests. So you'll see meditators sitting in the middle of these large anti-war protests, for example. Now, some people have said, what are they doing? What's the point? Is it going to make a difference? And other people have said, wow, I felt like it's the safest refuge in the midst of a protest where there's so much energy and a lot of negative energy. That, that being in the midst of a mindful protest can be quite a healing. I've used mindfulness in my own activism so thoroughly because I don't think I could have survived as an activist without mindfulness. It's just coming back again and again to what's motivating me, what, it, where I'm scared. Okay, be with the fear. Feel the fear. Um, to just being in my body in the midst of whatever I'm doing. When I worked at a nonprofit for a long time doing social change work, it was always about coming back into my body, even in the midst of doing email or in meetings, practicing kindness, practicing mindfulness all the time. Years ago, gosh, it it seems like it was recently, but it wasn't. It was 99 when I was um, up at the World Trade Organization protests. I was, um, I was trying to bring together a group of Buddhists as a support group for each other to go and do the, um, to be out as, um, I'm trying to remember, out in the field as a, what are they called, affinity groups, that's it. And I remember going to a meeting, and I was with another friend who was a Buddhist practitioner. We were sitting in the meeting, and it was in this giant warehouse it was up in Seattle when and the rain was pouring down the warehouse was freezing cold there were hundreds of people we were sitting there on the floor freezing 
And I remember just sitting there thinking, this is so miserable. I'm so cold. I hate this. It's going on forever. All these people are talking. Everybody, you know, activists all have opinions, right? So everybody has an opinion, 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 opinion. And um, suddenly my friend passed me a note. And the note said, I'm more mindful because you're here. And I thought, I'm not very mindful. But what it did was it reminded me to then come into my body, come into my heart. Oh, aversion, aversion. I'm hating this. Okay, it's just aversion. It's not a big deal. And from that place of acceptance of things, it was easier to be present and awake. So bringing mindfulness out, whether it's working with a homeless person, working with um, whatever your work is, I used to work with, I just remembered this story, I used to work with a woman who was, I worked at a clinic for people who were either poor or, um, or homeless. And I remember I would go do visits with this one woman. And I did this visit because I thought it was really like a good thing for me to be doing. I should be visiting a person who is less fortunate than I am. So I had this whole setup, and I would go to her. She lived in this little tiny room, and it was filled with cigarette smoke and clutter, and it just used to make me really unhappy. And again, I would go there, and I would just sit there and look at my clock and look at my watch and yawn and think, oh, my God, when is this going to be over? But I was doing a good thing. I was trying to help the world, right? And um, one day, in the midst of being frustrated and not liking it, I suddenly realized, Diana, you're not being very mindful. You're not being very aware. You're just sitting in your aversion. So I said, okay, I'm going to pretend that I'm meditating. And instead of my breath, it's going to be Barbara. So Barbara became my primary object. Barbara became the thing I paid attention to. So I gave her my full awareness, and then I would notice that I was getting sleepy. Okay, there's sleepiness arising and coming back to Barbara. Oh, there's hating. There's aversion arising and then coming back. And it became this incredible practice of developing mindfulness on the spot in the midst of facing her suffering. Completely transformed our relationship. She sensed it. She knew that I wasn't that present. But when I became more present, it was as if everything changed and we were there together. And it wasn't like I was helping her or she was benefiting from me. That was all just a story. It was really about being in presence with another human. It felt like real service at that point, really. So another principle of engaged Buddhism might be the principle of interdependence. How do we feel the connectedness that, we, that, we, that we're cultivating, that we start to know on our cushion as we meditate? How do we experience that as we serve? So I remember at the time at the, at the WTO protests, I really wanted to remind myself of interdependence and of the way that I'm implicated in what I'm fighting against. So I wore a t-shirt from The Gap, right? So everybody was opposed to The Gap, right? This was, this was a big thing at the time. And so I wore this just to remind myself that I'm not separate. The very institutions that we're fighting against or um, trying to change, we're embedded in it. Most of us drive cars. The war in Iraq is, really, is you know, oil, right? 
we are connected. It's not a separate. It's not separate. So Joanna Macy, who many of you are familiar with, she um, reminds us of this interdependence, and she wrote a meditation for uh, in the time of war, and it was actually done in 1991 in the first Gulf War. She says, when we feel such grief as this, there's a temptation to fold, to shut down. So this is a meditation on not shutting down. We can let the grief stretch us instead and open wider to the powers of life. We own our sorrow. We let it connect with all those who suffer in this assault upon life, with the herders and farmers and townspeople now under the bombs with the animals and birds of the desert, with the very stones of that ancient land, cradle of our civilization. We own our shame and let it reveal our connections with the weapon makers and generals and politicians whose greed for profits and power led our people into this dark way. We own our own anger and let it link us with all who are betrayed the hungry and homeless in our own cities, and the children whose future we prepare. So she goes on through a list of emotions that we, it's happening out there, it's happening in here. This is interdependence. This is knowing that we're not separate, that when we're angry, it's just, it's the same anger as the anger that's going on on the level of politicians or the greed that we might perceive within a larger political structure. We have it inside ourselves. And she says, Though hard to bear, the sorrow and shame, anger, fear, etc., it's a gift. For each can bring us into focus with the deep, invisible interconnections of the web of life and lift lift us out of our narrow selves and bring us into community across space and time. Each can open us to the boundless heart. So a principle of engaged Buddhism is acting and connecting to the way that we are all connected and that can we remember that? And we can't. You know, it's really easy to demonize and say, oh, that person is horrible and evil and I can't believe what they've done and I'm, you know, I'm not evil, I'm not horrible. We don't have that kind of power. But it's important when I remember how intimately connected I am, my judgment relaxes, it lessens them, and that's really helpful. You know, I don't, then I'm not acting out of, oh, you're wrong and you're bad and I'm good those separations, they, they shift. I had an experience a few years ago where I was, um, I was down at the Nevada desert test site and we were doing a protest against nuclear weapons um, research and development. And the group that I was with was, was um, 
they were trying, they were being pretty respectful. And then the cops had actually asked us, sorry, the police had asked us not to cross over the line because they actually didn't feel like arresting people that day. So there's this line that if you cross over it, then you're in um, government property and then they arrest you. And that's the typical protest that people do. So the police had asked us not to. And we said we wouldn't, that we would just do, we were doing some kind of meditation vigil outside. But one of the members of our group crossed and the policemen, the, the police who were there got really upset and angry and they became a little bit aggressive and we were upset and it just started this whole kind of us-them situation. And then, um, then we were done with the protest and we were getting back in our cars and it turned out that my friend had locked my keys in the car. And, um, and so, Suddenly, there we were, completely helpless, and someone said, well, I guess we should go ask the police for some help. <laughs> and um, so we had to kind of crawl with our tail between our legs back over to the police and ask for help, and suddenly these enemies became our salvation a few minutes later. And it was such an interesting moment in seeing the connectedness, the way we like to demonize, and the way that, you know, we're all just people. Another, another principle, I'll just give a few more principles and then we'll open this up for any kind of discussion. But another principle is the principle of not knowing. So it's so important when we practice, when we do our spiritual practice, to not have a lot of expectations and to come into it with a beginner's mind, to not hold to fixed views. You know, there's a quote, not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one showing clarity of vision, is freed from all sense desires and not born again into this world. It's a beautiful, beautiful quote from the Metta Sutta. So we're practicing this not holding to views, and yet for those of us who have very strong views, how can we, how can we protest something if we don't have a view? Should we have a sign that says, no nukes, I think? You know, not holding on to these views. And oftentimes, it, sometimes there's, there's, there's a lot of questions. Is what I'm doing doing any good? Does it make any sense? I've found the principle of not knowing, of keeping a beginner's mind to be so helpful in relaxing me. And again, it's not about achievement and success and we're going to do it. We don't know. How many times have we believed something and then found out the opposite? It just, it happens like that. So we can take this principle into the work we're doing and not hold so tightly. The last principle I'll talk about is the one that people really get, um, I don't know, confused by, is the principle of equanimity. How do you have equanimity in the midst of strong conviction and passion? How do you work for social change and, and still be passionate about what you do, and yet do it, do it as a Buddhist. You know, this was my idea of being a Buddhist. How do you have this complete equanimity and peace and non-attachment and not hate the other person, you know, the whole trip? This one is really, really hard. But what I'll say is that though as you sit on the cushion, you are developing equanimity. 
It's just naturally happening. As we can be with things as they are, we develop that skill. It's like the equanimity muscle of our hearts and minds develop. And we begin to have more and more ability and capacity. That capacity expands and expands to be with things as they are. Now, this does, being with things as they are does not mean not being passionate does not mean not caring about the world, does not mean not being attached in a certain way. It it, it does. Equanimity, right, has this basis in non-attachment. It's a balanced, even mind. But at the same time, it's as if we can have passion that's grounded in equanimity. If we can... If we can fully love the world and want to change it and feel the feel the beauty of the world and the and and come to it with this deep underlying un- understanding that things are as they are not being so peaceful and at ease that we don't want to change anything and not being so caught up and lost that we can't that we don't have any ease of mind But it's this balance of the two where we have deep equanimity and from that place we have clarity of mind to work and make change. And it comes, it's just this constant practice. It's not easy. It's not, it's not overnight practice. I think Ken, um, where is it? Ken, Ken Jones, who's one of the great people thinking about engaged Buddhism, he says, We care passionately about the world, almost too much at times. This is understandable, as our very lives are at stake. But a deep and constantly refreshed detachment must lie at the core of any really passionate relationship. Interesting quote. So that's just, I wanted to give an overview of engaged Buddhism and some thoughts about it. And really the encouragement is, um, if you're interested more, we can, I, I'll say a little at the end about how you can get more involved or more resources. But I'm curious about your questions and the questions maybe about anything I said or about being alive in these times, in these times of great suffering and fear and confusion, and how do we hold that with our practice? How does our practice relate to whatever you want, really? Yes.
No, I don't think I've ever done it till I was done. <laughs> um, I, I, similarly to you, it's it's kind of a constant practice where there are times. I mean, just back up a little. That one of the principles, and it was sort of touched on when I was talking about, is how to open to suffering because it's opening to suffering that allows true compassion and compassionate action to emerge. And that's what you're pointing to. So, and yet, if you really let in all the suffering, I mean, we'd be incapacitated, right? I mean, if we were to sit, I mean, just sometimes you can read the newspaper and just be overwhelmed. And, and a lot of us just either turn it off or, um, you know, don't, don't, um, there t- there, actually, there tends to be different types of people. There are the people that tend to sit, sit to really take it in and be in it and in the midst of the suffering all the time. And then there are other people that tend to put it off. Like, okay, I'm not going to look at that. That's fine. I know things are a mess in the world, but that's okay. Um, and so really, it's, there's, there's something about finding a balance, knowing where you are and knowing when to let things in and when to um, say enough. So I know for myself, sometimes when the, the suffering feels overwhelming, I might go on a media fast, right, where I don't, I don't let it in deliberately because it incapacitates me. But then when I get to a point where I feel like I'm so sort of removed from it and it's a little bit, I'm a little bit pulled back from it, that's when I begin to let it in. And then it's a practice. How much can I let in before... I'm no longer effective or it's no longer useful to me. And so I feel like I'm always in this practice with it. So recently, recently I was going through another wave. I mean, this, is, this has been 15, 20 years of exploring this, going through another wave of the suffering is so great, how can I find equanimity with it? And so I was really caught in it. And I actually went to see Joanna a few um, this was about three weeks ago, and I said, I, I'm trying to be a good Buddhist. I'm trying to practice having equanimity and not being attached. And she looked at me and she says, I am attached. I'm attached. I want this world to be a better place. And it really cut through my own, I need to be non-attached. Um, and she said to me something else that was so beautiful. She said, because I, I think when I get really, personally, when I get overwhelmed by the suffering, I start to feel like I don't even want to be here. You know, like it's too much. And she said, is there any place you'd rather be than here to help out in these times? You know, this is the Bodhisattva vow. Is there any place you'd rather be than here to help out? We need everybody to help out in whatever way you're helping out. Even the little tiniest ways is helping to move the world towards more change, healthy change. But anyway, that's sort of reflections on your question. Not sure I answered it. But, yeah. Sometimes we see equanimity as a vehicle to inviting, inviting sins. 
Yeah, it's a lovely way of talking about it. Thank you. Dad's silence. (laughs) Yes? In training to be a doctor, struggling a bit with, with my training that um, tells me that my job is to fix things fix people's problems and working a lot at San Francisco General mm-hmm. where people have enormous problems and oftentimes their health problems are sort of the least of it and find that framework of wanting to fix things not so useful to creating a lot of suffering for mm-hmm. myself and probably also for my patients. And you're trying to step out of it, but then coming back and what am I doing here? What am I mm-hmm. trying to do? Yeah, it's a great question. It's, um, she was talking, for those of you who couldn't hear, she was talking about working as a doctor with patients where there's a lot of suffering and um, wanting to fix, but in a sense knowing that it's unfixable and how do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure we ever really fix anything <laughs> in the deep on the deepest level. Like we like we can make adjustments and changes and we can help and people get healthier. I think that the intention is so key and staying connected to our intention and constantly letting go of the results. You know, particularly when you're working with the population that you're working with. So in the Bhagavad Gita, that's talked about not being attached to the fruit of one's actions. And how do we give and give with all our heart and then let go? And know that you may not have fixed it, or you might have, but you just don't know. You know, I mean, I remember years ago, Ram Dass telling the story about somebody who was a very compassionate person who picked up a little chipmunk who was dying on the side of the road I'm sure I'm getting this wrong. This is like filtered through many years. But anyway, picked up this chipmunk and the chipmunk was dying. They brought it home and they started feeding it warm milk to bring it back to life. And then um, the chipmunk, like chipmunks don't eat milk and they died. (laughs) And, um, And so the intention was so profound and yet the results were exactly the opposite of what the woman had intended. And so we just don't know. You know, we really don't know. So it's coming back again and again to this place of I'm doing what I can do. And, and then, 
you know, and then we'll see what happens, turning it over in a sense. But it's a hard one. It's a really hard one. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. It's really important that for those of you who are in these kind of particularly high-stress caregiving situations that you take care of yourself. And we've been um, working on principles of engaged Buddhism, and one of them is taking care of myself, I take care of the world. You know, if we're not taking, I mean, we can't do anything if we're exactly in that situation you're describing. And it, it's... Um, I love the Bodhisattva vow because the Bodhisattva vow is the vow to save all beings. But all, be- all beings also includes you. you know, so don't forget that if you're a person that tends to be a giver-giver, that it also includes working with yourself and taking care of yourself. So key. So key. One last one. We have to end pretty soon, I think. So, yeah. wisdom and even so early in your process that you realize that you can't totally fix people and that that's, that's the problem with the you know the system of medicine and everything right now is sort of this it's very like this very egoic thing that like you know doctors think that they can fix everything and pretend that they can and uh, I know that in doing body work and other healing work with people that that it's the hardest for me and the most damaging for me when I 
think that I can fix people when I try to fix people. But instead, I've noticed that in giving and receiving healing work, that the most of the power comes, just like Diana, what you were saying, is being present with that woman, that, that even just that, no matter what you're doing, even if you're just listening, that creates this whole other level of healing that is sometimes way more powerful than surgery or drugs or whatever other kind of intervention. So it's, I just like appreciated that you said that and mm-hmm. that it's very alive. Thank you. Yeah, good. So we have to end early. Um, so just to say that if um, you're interested more in engaged Buddhism, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship is a great resource, and um, their their website is bpf.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.